Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And welcome to the Water Cooler, everybody. Happy Friday, everybody. Glad you're along for the ride. It's Friday, February 19, 2021. And today, TGIF stands for the Grumbling Immigration Fallout. The White House out with their big immigration bill, and well, <laughs> let's just say that the whole thing is pretty much a non-starter. Definitely for Republicans, even some Democrats are saying the liberal left bill is not going to pass. Folks, we're talking about a couple of things, a pathway to citizenship in eight years, nothing on border security, and oh, by the way, the White House wants to now get rid of the term alien and just go with non-citizen. We're going to explore all of this today. Why did my voice change? Anyhow, plus, Biden and Netanyahu are sitting in a tree and they are not K-I-S-S-I-N gene. We're going to speak to an Israeli expert today who actually says President Biden doesn't trust the Israeli prime minister when it comes to public policy. And the parlor comeback, they are back. They're taking on big tech with a novel approach. How conservatives can navigate today's landmines as big tech turns into big brother. And today that is where we begin. Conservatives losing their First Amendment right to free speech is not, by the way, just a cute little story. It's a real thing. It's downright serious. And it's not going away anytime soon. Parler experienced that firsthand. Obviously, after having to shut down post-January 6th, they're now back with a new way to fight big tech and joining us on the water cooler now, the interim CEO of Parlor, Mark Meckler. Hey, Mark, great to see you again. You and I go back to those Tea Party days. Thanks for being here. We do. We've been fighting for free speech together for a long time. Well, it's great to have you here. I want you to give us the latest update on Parlor in terms of what we should expect from the company moving forward from kind of this day on out. So Parler's back online. If you were a Parler user before, you can just pop open your app and get right back into your account. Everything should be pretty seamless and should work as you're used to having it work. Parler is also on the web at parler.com, so you can always go there and log on to your account there. What's a little bit different right now is if you wanted to be a new user, we're not accepting new users right now. Our goal was to just make sure we're taking care of the existing 21 million users, get them on the platform, get everything restabilized on a go-forward basis. And over the last week, we've had a couple of tech bumps along the way. I would expect that the stack's big. There's a lot of technology involved in running something like this and having to do it all from scratch in just a few short weeks. It's a, it just speaks an incredible testament to the dedication and talent of the staff at Parlor. But we're here, we're strong, and we're here to stay. Mark, tell me about uh, no, no longer relying on big tech for your infrastructure. So, so explain this. And, and also, what about the timetable in terms of maybe when some of these bumps might be able to be ironed out? What's your sense on a timeline there? Yeah, so first of all, on the big tech question, we moved all of our technologies off of what we would consider big tech. Of course, the top of that stack is AWS, Amazon Web Services. That's where we were hosted. That's where we were unceremoniously removed in a breach of contract. And, and what I also believe is a restraint of trade. I, I think this is an antitrust case that's going to go a long ways. And I think 
I think we're going to win that case ultimately. Mm -hmm. So we had to move off of big tech. We found independent hosting providers that I believe are great patriots and are going to stand with us in the fight. They're not going to crumble to the woke mob. And then that stack goes all the way down through all the different slices of technology that are required. I mean, if you look at it, you look at a website, you and I use it, it works, we don't think about it. There's a lot behind it. The second thing we did that I think is really important is everything that we built into the stack is intended to be redundant. There's more than one provider. So whatever happens, we believe that we're safe and secure in here for the long term. Right. So let me ask you, Mark. So you're the new uh, CEO, the interim CEO, uh, former CEO has been replaced. So what direction do you want Parler to go in? So how will it be different than before? And I want to get into community guidelines and all that in a moment. But what's your sense of the overall direction here? Yeah, there really isn't much of a directional change. I mean, Parler was set okay. up to be the, to the town square, essentially. And basically what that means is that we expect Parler to be a place for free speech. And as long as it's legal, if you could say it in the town square, you could say it on Parler, and we're not going to censor it. So that, okay. that doesn't change at all. Well, and so that kind of leads me to my next question. What is that line for Parler? You mentioned the legality, obviously. If it's, if it's legal, you can say it. How does the community guideline portion of this work? How do you monitor all of this? I mean, that, that seems like it has to be multi-layered somehow, or, or how, is it the Wild West? <laughs> how does it work exactly? Look, it's a monumental task, of course, because you, you end up getting hundreds of thousands and then into the millions of comments and posts. And so what we've instituted is we've added in a layer of AI that is screening all this stuff. Our screens are very limited. And what we're screening for, as discussed, is really just illegal com illegal comments, planning of crimes, things like that. Those are not allowed in Parlor. They're not allowed in the public square. And then we have a second layer behind that. And that's the human layer. And that's where we have human beings that review everything that's been caught by the AI. And the intent there is to make sure that we're not screening out things that aren't illegal because we are a free speech platform. So those are the two layers that we utilize to make sure that we are the most open, free speech platform in the world today. Mark, you know what's fascinating? You've just explained the AI layer and the human layer here in terms of community guidelines, and yet big tech, you know, they, they have no, there's no wiggle room with them. It's like my way or the highway. I mean, you know, you, you can't get a break with these guys at all. It's like there's the Gestapo out there. Well, that's because big tech is intent on silencing people. They don't want to hear from people they disagree with. To the contrary, on Parler, we want everybody on Parler. We don't care what their political perspective is, left, right, center, whatever. We want them there. We want them participating. You know, the term parlay is a term that actually means when people who are in conflict come together to speak and to talk things out. And that's what this is a place for. It's for open dialogue. We believe if there's bad speech, the best answer is to meet it with good speech and meet it with more speech. So that's the basis for Parler. How do you enforce some of these community guidelines and standards? I mean, what, what happens if someone violates them? What, they just, just delete the account or how, how does that work? Well, if people are engaged in illegal activity, then of course we're gonna kick them off the platform and, and that's what we do. I mean, it's a really firm line. If you're engaging in illegal activity on the Parler platform, you're not going to be welcome on the platform. Right. Uh, regarding Facebook, I thought what was interesting is everybody made a big deal about January 6th and Parler. Oh, January 6th happened, Parler was taken off. But Facebook had tons of this stuff going on. It, it's just unbelievable, the hypocrisy. Look at this Forbes uh, talking to Sheryl Sandberg, downplayed Facebook's role in the Capitol siege. Justice Department file, files tell a very different story. I mean, it's just, just remarkable here, Mark. It is. You know, I, I think this is a really important article. George Washington University Center on Extremism did a full study on this. That's what's re reported in that Forbes article in early February. 
There are 223 individuals charged in charging documents. If you look at what happened out of it, 73 of those refer to Facebook. You've got 24 that refer to YouTube, 20 Instagram, also owned by Facebook. A mere eight where Parler was mentioned. It's unbelievable that there's the focus on Parler, that big tech came down on Parler, that Congress is on Parler. This is actually, if there was a problem, it was all about really the big tech oligarchs. So this is just a political hit job mm -hmm. by government and by the radical left in the tech oligarchy. Mark, you know, it makes me think back to our Tea Party days, uh, or your Tea Party days when I first met you. And you, I mean, you were harping honestly on this stuff uh, all along as a rule. I mean, you know, you can go back to the convention of, uh, of the states and all just this yep. idea of of uh, the First Amendment and, and the citizens' rights and all of that. And I'm just wondering uh, where you think this is headed and, and, and how much conservatives need to be very concerned about what's happening here. I think conservatives should be extremely concerned when you see the government coming down on free speech and limiting our rights, which has been going on for quite a while, and then you see them in line with the tech oligarchy. I think we're living in very dangerous times. This is why I, I founded the Convention of States project as well, is because the idea is with Convention of States, take the power away from the federal government and give it back to the people in the states. The federal government has become a dangerous entity instead of protecting our fundamental rights as laid out in the Constitution as granted to us by God. They're now attacking those fundamental rights and it's gonna be up to the people to defend themselves. Mark, what can you tell us about any conversations with uh, President Trump or his former President Trump or his team? I know you want him to, you would love for him to, <laughs> to join on Parler and for that matter, Joe Biden as well, but uh, have there been any discussions about him trying to possibly get on Parler? Yeah, I haven't had any discussions like that, but I absolutely would welcome the former president on Parler. But important to know, we would love to have President Joe Biden on Parler as well, because we are a free speech platform and we want everybody here. You know, maybe we could get them parlaying back and forth on Parler. <laughs> Very nice. All right. So let me ask you this real quick as we wrap up here. Look, big tech, right? So they're cracking down not just on uh, these what they call election fraud stories, but they're now cracking down on anti-vaccine talk. They're now clamping down, Facebook apparently now clamping down on supposedly anti-climate change information. Uh, what's the answer here, Mark? How, how do conservatives fight back? Because this thing seems to be morphing into a iceberg right ahead, real quick scenario. Look, I think conservatives fight back by doing what we're doing at Parler is they leave those platforms because those platforms are limiting free speech. They come over to Parler and we engage in those discussions. We need to have those discussions. This is incredibly important. I think the other thing we have to do, and we're working on this, is we designed something called the stack, which is all the services that conservatives or just people who believe in free speech need so that they can't be silenced by the woke mob on the left. And we're gonna, you're gonna continue to see more rollouts by Parler and affiliates around the stack, all these services that we need to survive online. Can you expand on that just real quick? What do you mean the stack and the services, just so people understand that? Yeah, so, and this is important to exist in an online world. There's something that I call the stack, and the stack is made up of blocks, which go from the cloud to the ground. We need cloud hosting. This is where we got cut off from AWS, so we've had to find alternative hosts. You need things like merchant account providers, places that they will take your credit cards. When you put your credit card in online, there's a merchant account provider. Those are cutting off conservatives, so we need conservatives handling those. We need conservative banks. We need conservative email service providers. And again, when I say conservative, I want, I want to be really clear. I don't mean in their political orientation. I mean in their belief in the protection of free speech. 
So there are all these services that we need all the way up and down the service chain to exist in an online ecosphere. That's what the stack is designed to provide people who believe in free speech. A, a new grid to fight big tech, for sure. Exactly. All right, Mark Meckler, great to see you. Congratulations over there at Parlor, and good luck in the future. Really appreciate you being here on the water cooler. Thanks for having us. All right, Mark Meckler uh, doing some pretty neat things over at Parlor, uh, and they're back, folks. Uh, and the question is, Will conservatives be ready to fight? It's really that simple. Uh, you can shrink from the fight or you can step up. It's up to conservatives in this country uh, to fight. And otherwise, look, a big tech's going to ramrod you. I don't think there's any question about it. If you're not comfortable with taking the vaccine, hey, you know what? They're going to try to pressure you into not posting something about that. It's all of that. Back in a moment. Immigration next. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs. A gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. Immigration. <laughs> Get ready. Democrats are introducing this big whopping Im immigration bill. Why am I laughing? Here, let's put up the political headline, and now you'll see why. Recipe for disaster. Dems fear fears mount over immigration overhaul. Yeah, you know why? Because this is a progressive Dream come true, a list of priorities that we'll go through uh, during this segment. I want to bring in Manuel Miranda, <laughs> former counsel to Majority Leader Bill Frist. Uh, uh, Manuel, great to have you back on the show, sir. It's great to be back with you all. Well, well, uh, Manny, I've got to tell you, Democrats have got to be kind of going, wait a minute here. The, the, we're about to go into some of the details on this, but you got to be wondering whether or not they think they, they're going to bite off way too much than, than uh, the American public wants to chew here. They certainly have. This bill is basically the worst of, of the iterations of previous bills. First of all, the issue of a pathway to citizenship for millions of um, undocumented aliens is dead on arrival. It is simply not passable even among Democrats. The other provisions are workable to some extent, uh, but as a package, the notion of a comprehensive bill, that's unlikely to pass too. Now, if you use the word coherent, that might pass. <laughs> if you approached it for coherence, things that made, make sense. Now, I have to tell you, there are some aspects of this bill that are opportunities. Uh, and, and for example, the, all things DACA. David, between you and me, uh, DACA, the DACA issue is sort of like the embassy in Jerusalem. Yeah. You've got to just deal with that so as to get crazy out of off the table and get them get those people out of the room. That is an issue that everybody can agree on. Yep. That needs to be accommodated. But there are some other issues here that are just way overboard and don't get to the heart of the problem which is that we have a system of incentives that basically encourage people to come across the border because they know we won't enforce our laws and our laws well, actually incentivize them to come over here, such as, for example, 
the fact that you can come over here and have children, and those are going to be uh, U.S. citizens. Yeah. And David, one last point, and this speaks to Republicans, something very important about this particular new wave, 25 years now, it's been two or three major iterations, 25 years since the last significant reform. This one is different. I'll tell you why. For all these years, Republicans have said, you know what? These uh, illegal folks, they don't vote. That's no longer the case. Mm -hmm. No, they don't vote. But they've been here long enough to have U.S. citizen children who do vote because yeah. they're now 18 years old. They're 19 years old. They're 20 years old. They're not the DACA kids. The DACA kids are not U.S. are never going to be U.S. citizens or not going to are not U.S. citizens now in any case. But these other kids, these kids that have been born here, they're anchor babies, U.S. citizen children. Those people vote and they care about their parents who have lived under a shadow. So Republicans need to awaken to the fact that there is actually now a voter group that significantly cares about this issue. Okay, so real quick, what do they do then? What's your suggestion to Republicans? How do they how do they maneuver that? If these if these uh, kids are now all grown up and are voting, what do they have to do? Yeah, nobody knows my email, so I won't get emails about this. So, look, the bottom line is that <laughs> I hate to say this to you, but Obama was actually onto something. He uh, went after the DACA children. That's an easy one. Yeah. He also went on after. It was called DAPA, which was to, to go after the parents of U.S. citizen children. Mm -hmm. those, those folks that, I'll tell you what, they own a house. They've been working, though illegal, they've been working for 10, 20 years. Mm -hmm. They may be married to a U.S. citizen wife, yeah. but they can't realize themselves because they didn't enter the country legally. These people are out there right. in the millions. And so... You have to find a way to accommodate the DACA children. That's a, that's an easy one. Mm -hmm. But you also have to accommodate the the DAPAs, which is to say the parents of U.S. citizen children Got that it. are here. Okay, so that that's interesting, and that, that that's an interesting take on it. I want to put up what's in the bill so people understand. Uh, let's just go through this real quick. Uh, and this is the White House uh, immigration bill. Uh, look at this, an eight-year eight-year pathway to citizenship. It would remove, I want to get your take on this, it would remove the word alien from U.S. immigration laws. It would replace it with non-citizen. Then it goes into DACA, it provide a quick three-year route to citizenship for DACA kids. I think that's the, that's the easy stuff here that needs to get done, right? Uh, it would also increase per-country caps on family and employment-based legal immigration numbers. And it would repeal the penalty that prohibits illegal immigrants who leave the country from returning to the U.S. They'd get rid of that penalty. Uh, where are some of the danger spots here? And what about this removing alien from U.S. immigration laws? That sounds like a very Joe Biden thing to do. It is. That's actually a great way of, of putting it because it's downright uh, shallow and, uh, and silly. Okay, fine. Go ahead. Do that. Who cares? I mean, it's just a, it's one of these things that, you know, somehow satisfies the academic left and do it. You know, if, if it'll, and that's something that you can give that away. But some of the other ones are actually interesting. You know, the, the one at the bottom the, where you eliminate the penalty when someone who has been here illegally leaves the country and they can't come back for 10 years. The penalty is they cannot re-enter even legally right. for 10 years. That actually is something that one can work with 
that one gets into the weeds of immigration law. And it's something you can work with because there's actually a way to, to solve a major chunk of folks that are here. They entered the country. Perhaps they overstayed their visa. They've led productive lives. They might even be married and have kids. But uh, in an attempt to, to somehow legalize, go back to their native country, try to perhaps reapply, they cannot come back into the country for 10 years. So they don't want to leave. Yeah. If you could somehow solve that problem, you could uh, end the, the, reduce the problem, eliminate the fear that people have. Because at the end of the day, look, immigration law has to encourage one thing, mm -hmm. stability in our society, yeah. stability in the law, stability in the family. And we have to nurture that yeah. above all things. And, and that would go a long way to solve our, our problem. Yeah. Manuel Miranda, great to see you. Thanks for uh, the, the straight talk on immigration. Love to get you back. Great. Thank you, David. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, thank you. Uh, and look, where was border security in all of this? And E-Verify, we got to talk about that, too. All right. Uh, we're back in a moment uh, with Joel Rosenberg, the editor-in-chief of All Israel News, who knows Rush Limbaugh, knew Rush Limbaugh very well. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to The Water Cooler, everybody. Uh Joe Biden, Benjamin Netanyahu. It is a relationship I am going to be watching. We're going to be watching closely here at the water cooler. Uh, Joe Biden finally called Netanyahu this past week. What took him so long? Was he looking for like a rotary phone in the White House, like old school? I don't know what happened. Uh, here's what happened. Let's be honest. That was a message sent by the president of the United States to Israel to say, hey, we'll get to you. But just hold on for a moment. Maybe, I mean, you're really important, but I've got a few other things to do. I, I th It was a signal. I don't think there's any question about it. We're going to get into all of that in a moment. Also, what we're going to talk about in this segment is uh, more of Rush Limbaugh. Why are we going to talk about Rush Limbaugh specifically? Because the next guest uh, we're about to talk to knew him well. He actually worked for Rush Limbaugh, Joel Rosenberg. Uh, who I've known for a, very, a long time. He's a best-selling author, and he's uh, author of the new book, The Beirut Protocol. As a matter of fact, Rush Limbaugh actually had him on his show uh, back in the day to talk about uh, one of his other big famous books. And so Joel is going to be here to discuss uh, not just uh, about Rush, but also a little bit about the uh, Biden-Netanyahu uh, relationship. We spoke to Joel earlier today. Joel Rosenberg, always great to see you. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. My pleasure, David. Great to be with you. Well, you've got to talk to me, obviously, about the news of Rush Limbaugh passing this week. I mean, you knew him. You knew him well. You worked for him. I, I, tell me some of your recollections, your stories, and, and all about when you heard the news this week. Yeah, it's been a hard few days. Um, I, uh, I, I first met Rush in the fall of 1993. I was being interviewed for a job, uh, I was working for Bill Bennett at the time, um, but but Bennett had just had dinner with his dear friend Rush Limbaugh, and Rush was looking for a research director based in Washington. And uh, Bennett recommended me. I flew up to New York, and uh, we had a great conversation. I had to confess that I'd been a Democrat growing up, and 
I'd voted for Al Gore in the New York primaries, and then I made a conservative journey, and he roared. He just laughed so uh, hard, and we and then just started a friendship. He hired me in early '94, and I worked with him for two years, and and but more than that, he was so generous. I mean, I look, I could have gone to graduate school and spent a lot of money learning political communications, but I learned more in just a couple of years with Rush than I could have learned anywhere about how to develop and, and drive a message. And uh, and then he was incredibly generous with my novels. My first one, he loved it and he put me on the air. Now, David, you know, he had presidents of the United States occasionally, right. and Mr. Newt, right, the Speaker of the House. He didn't have staff people on his show, but yeah. he just, he turned that first book into a huge bestseller, The Last Jihad, and then and we just stayed friends, and uh, mostly by email and phone over the years. But it hit, so I knew I knew he was obviously not gonna, not long. And I had uh, reached out to him just after I heard the diagnosis uh, last February, uh, 2020, and said, "Hey, I'm, I'm, I just got into the states from Israel. Could I come see you? Because I knew it might be my last." And he said, "Absolutely, please do." And I headed to Palm Beach, but that week I just basically hunkered in a hotel room. He was having a very bad week. And each day he's like, no, 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 I think tomorrow, but it didn't work and I didn't get to see him. But uh, yeah. I uh, I just love him, uh, I appreciate him. And uh, he wasn't a perfect man, but he was a giant. <laughs> and well, uh, it's really the end of an era. Yeah, for sure. And, and he, he cared so much about not just the fabric of America, but the Judeo-Christian principles that are the bedrocks of this country. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, that and, and uh, not quite sure about his relationship with God, but it does seem like he obviously had uh, some sort of relationship with God there. He did. So two areas. One, he saw uh, um, the America that he was growing up with uh, in as, as falling apart, and really that there was there were, that the values that he grew up in with in Cape Girardeau, uh, Missouri, the Midwest of the Midwest, the Judeo-Christian values that he had embraced as a young person and from a very devout Christian family, but but the, that was all under assault and it was being mocked. And then mm -hmm. there was no outlet in the mainstream media that you could have a serious conversation that was other than the, the, the liberal media narrative. And it just, it frosted him. My view though, is that over the years, I knew him for 28 years, is that he, while he'd been raised in a Christian home, it, it wasn't personal to him. The values were, but um, in the last couple of years, I, is my understanding of it, in, in, it was 2019, that he actually came to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I, I saw it begin to change him in a significant way. And he began to talk about it in 2020 on his show I just wrote a piece for our new website, All Israel News, about it because, and I quote him from one of those broadcasts because hmm. he was late in the game. It was it was this show, late October, 2020. He said, "Look, I'm under a death sentence. There's no way out. I've I've made my peace with it, but I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and it's giving me the hope uh, and the peace every day to endure." I'm paraphrasing, wow. but. Yeah, sure. That was big because he never he for being such a public person, David. You know, he was a very private person when it came to the deepest issues of faith, not politics, but faith. Mm -hmm. Right, for sure. Joel, uh, before we let you go, we got about a minute or so left, so I, I know you could do seven and a half minutes on on this answer. But Biden finally called Netanyahu. What did you yeah. make of the? I mean, look, it was a call that should have happened much earlier. Uh, what, what's your take on on how it went and what that means going forward? 
uh, the call went fine as by, by all indications, but I think the message, the signal was important and it was not healthy, but it was, it was President Biden sending a message to a man he likes, but distrusts deeply, which is Benjamin Netanyahu saying, listen, you think you're such a hotshot, um, we're not gonna deal with you the same as the Trump administration dealt with you and that you're one of the, the closest allies and closest friends we have. You, That's you, think he distrust, you think he distrusts Netanyahu? Degree? Uh, when it comes to policy, yes. Uh, okay. Not, not, I mean, they, you know, they're, they're, they're friends, but, but Biden is a politician and he's sending another politician a message, which is get in the back of the line. Hmm. That's a problem because we're in one of the most difficult moments with Iran right now. Iran is pushing towards nuclear weapons. They just captured a, a South Korean tanker a few weeks ago. They're pushing the, every every line they're they're using their allies to attack uh united states our embassy and other places so we've got a big problem and and yeah. biden should be closing the gap there should be no daylight between the united states and israel right now there's a little bit of daylight and that's a concern yeah. joel rosenberg always great to catch up with you thanks for the uh the uh, thoughts about rush limbaugh and your relationship sure. with him of course on israel as well really appreciate it thanks for asking shabbat shalom that's uh, Joel Rosenberg here on The Water Cooler. Uh, he is a wealth of knowledge for sure. Well, I'm back on the show very, very soon. All right, when we come back, uh, Tim Graham from the Media Research Center is going to be here. They are tracking all the anti-Rush Limbaugh hate out there. Back in a moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. Hey, uh, as you know, Rush Limbaugh passed away uh, this week at the age of 70 years old. And of course, I thought to myself, well, if there's going to be any compassion for Rush Limbaugh, it's going to come from liberals, of course, because they always talk about compassion, right? I mean, uh, they always say, accept you just as you are. Uh, and, and they're always, always so warm and embracing, right? That's what they preach every single day, right? Uh, social justice. And they preach, you know, just love your neighbor and the whole thing. So I figured let's go to Twitter uh, and take a look at some of the liberals out there uh, embracing Rush Limbaugh in a very compassionate way, shall we? Uh, uh, here's one. I wouldn't say I was happy that Rush Limbaugh died. It's more like euphoria. Okay, so that doesn't sound very compassionate. How about this one? from blue check Tony Schwartz. Let's be clear, Rush Limbaugh was a liar, a racist, a bully, and a hideous influence on millions of Americans. I don't wish for anyone's death, but his is not a loss. Folks, this is the duplicity and the hypocrisy of liberals in America. How many times do I have to say it? <sighs> we, have got, we have one more. Look at this. Happy Rush Limbaugh is dead day. I didn't even get the chance to put my tree up. These people are sick. Absolutely sick. Let's bring in uh, Tim Graham, a uh, director of media analysis for the Media Research Center. Uh, Tim, good to see you, sir. Thank you. Um, I, I don't know. Take it away. I have no idea what to say. I'm dumbfounded. Uh, maybe I'm not dumb. I shouldn't be dumbfounded, right? At this point, I shouldn't be dumbfounded. Well, they've had lots of time to prepare for this, sadly, because uh, Russia had announced he had cancer. And uh, I believe just a, a month or two ago, he, he said, this, there is no coming back from this. Um, 
And he basically had suggested that uh, uh, they expected he'd be gone, you know, by the fall. So um, obviously Rush Limbaugh was a pivotal figure in the conservative movement, conservative communications. And, and that's one of the reasons you get this kind of response. Uh, and it wasn't just people on Twitter. We, we, we did get this, you know, on MSNBC, on the, on the news networks, uh, in the obituaries and the newspapers, uh, you know, the New York Times obit had a headline all about how he created a right-wing attack machine. Um, and it was easy for people to say these newspapers were kinder to the, uh, the guy in charge of ISIS, Fidel Castro, et cetera, which I guess underlines the point that when it comes to liberals, there just doesn't, the dictators abroad or the terrorists abroad are never as large an enemy. They're never as hideous as American conservatives. Well, and it makes you wonder, Tim, why is that exactly? Why were they so threatened by Rush Limbaugh, the, the, the quote, mainstream media? Uh, it just, he, he, had, he had a power, he had an influence uh, that was unmatched, unrivaled. I suppose it's trauma from all the uh, troubling Thanksgiving dinner debates. I try not to do that at Thanksgiving to anyone. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I mean, obviously when somebody's influential, this happens. But I would also say, look, when liberals complain about Rush Limbaugh, and that includes in obituaries like this, you always get the distinct impression that they didn't actually listen to the program. Right. What they're getting is sort of a packet put together by the people who use hashtags like flush rush, um, who've spent 30 years uh, sort of uh, pulling all the, the threads of this is where we can get them. No, this is where we can destroy the show. No, this is this one is really going to help us destroy the show. And when you go back, some of those were actually bad things he said that he often would apologize for. Calling Sandra Fluck a slut was a bad thing to say. There was a lot of things you could say that were very critical of Sandra Fluck and her feminist crowd. Uh, he, when, he, when he stepped in it, he apologized. But the obits don't exactly acknowledge this. You know, I was looking and writing about the Associated Press last night and they made this flush rush list of terrible things he said and didn't acknowledge the context around them. Uh, it was just, let's just make a list and, and make it sound like he's terrible. And they're all out of context. You know, and my sense of it is, Tim, he also was uh, like a happy warrior. Because if you listen to him, you know, a lot of folks would say, oh, he was always about demonization and he was always about insults. No, he wasn't. He ever watched a show for three or listened to a show for three hours a day. He did a lot of satire. Uh, he, did, he had a lot of fun uh, with the show. And you can always kind of tell there was a wink and a smile through, through it all. Not that he didn't believe it. He believed it all. But, but there was a wink and a smile to say, you know what, better days are ahead. And I think for conservatives in America, the dominant media is so liberal and it's so partisan and it's so aggressive. Uh, part of what Limbaugh did that was so important was he was sort of like the chief morale officer. Um, he, could, he could run the media clips and laugh. He could uh, rebut them with gusto and he could rebut them with satire. And, and these certainly weren't used to the idea of people would write songs mocking Ted Kennedy as, you know, philanderer or, <laughs> you know, all these kind of bits. One of my favorites was when they had, uh, this is antique now, I suppose, when they had Ken Starr and James Carville and 
And James Carville said, Ken stars the space aliens that's trying to trap your kids into smoking. <laughs> it's, it's, they're still classic comedy bits, you know, and Ken Starr was like, well, I never, <laughs> and, you know, making fun of James Carville's just fun. And that's, that's part of what they didn't get. And, and yes, I don't think they took him seriously as a, as somebody who had an intellectual case to make, mm-hmm. um, because let's face it. Uh, one, they think, well, if you're entertaining conservatives, you must be going to the lowest common denominator because aren't they all idiots? Right. And then you get to that point where, you know, even when you get, uh, you know, Mark Levin or Laura Ingram, people who have law degrees who can explain all the fine points of things and Rush could explain all the fine points of things. Liberals will just never acknowledge there is such a thing as an intellectual argument against their positions. And so that certainly gets slighted in all of these nasty obituaries that, that that there was a heft and a substance there that they really never wanted to really deal with. Yeah. All right. Well, Tim Graham, really appreciate you being on the show. Great perspective. And uh, you guys at the Media Research Center, you hold them accountable. You hold that liberal media accountable. Appreciate you. Thank you, David. All right. Tim Graham there uh, with MRC. Uh, and, you know, he's right. And look, Rush Limbaugh changed the face the media landscape, for sure, the face of talk radio. I'd say the face of talk radio. There really wasn't much of talk radio. I remember, I'm dating myself, I remember listening to Rush in 1988. Who is this guy? And boy, did he, ju- he, he lit- Mark Levin can thank him. Sean Hannity can thank him. Uh, Glenn Beck can thank him. I can go down the list. Rush Limbaugh, there will never be another Rush Limbaugh. There's no doubt about that. All right, when we come back, uh, we've got a lot more on the show, including the last sip. And it has to do with, wait for it, Sean Penn. I know, it's riveting. Don't go anywhere. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the Water Cooler, everybody. Time for the last sip of Friday last sip, and we begin it with these... I had to to count it. Look, I'm old. Give me a break. Four words. Poll of the day. The water cooler. Poll of the day. (laughs) Why am I counting these words? All right, here's here's a question for you. How often do you watch college or professional sports in person on television? Uh, Every day or nearly every day? Only 8%. Most days, 15%. Once or twice a week, 25%. About once a month, 13%. Rarely or never, look at this whopping number, 38%. And 2% say not sure. But what's interesting about that poll, uh, put me in the rarely or never category, 38%. And let me tell you, I'm a big sports fan, big sports fan. Uh, But I'm going to be in that 38% bracket. Why? Because I'm going to just be straight with you. It's gotten too politically incorrect for me. I mean, too politically correct for me, excuse me. I can't deal with that. Plus, i got to have some fans in the stands. You know, watching with, like, no one around. I mean, it's just not, eh, it's like whatever, so rarely. 
Rarely. All right. So that's part of the last sip today. But the other part of the last sip has to do with uh, something uh, people are also not watching, which are Sean Penn movies. <laughs> uh, Sean Penn, uh, he's out of control. Uh, you, you know him. You love him. Maybe you don't love him. Actually, you probably hate him. Uh, but, but here he is, the uh, Hollywood actor. Look at this tweet. What does this even mean? Evangelical leaders should themselves be impeached huh, by the Vatican if they themselves don't follow Nikki Haley's lead and clearly state they should not have followed Satan. Satin? <laughs> That's not a typo, by the way. Uh, well, it's whatever. Followed Satan into the bowels of hell, but perhaps they are too busy at sex parties, which I don't even understand that last part um, because last time I checked, I don't know anything about evangelical sex parties. Uh, but I do want to say this. Uh, look, can we put up that tweet again one more time? Because evangelicals should be impeached? I don't get that. That doesn't make any sense. Why should evangelical leaders should themselves be impeached by the Vatican. First of all, it has nothing to do with the Vatican. Uh, I, I don't even want to go there. The bottom line is, give me a break, Sean Penn. Evangelicals supported Donald Trump because he represented Judeo-Christian values. Was he a evangelical poster boy? No. Was he a guy that could quote the Bible chapter and verse? No. But he stood up for Judeo-Christian principles, which, oh, by the way, Joe Biden goes to church every day, but is okay with partial birth abortion. So go figure that one out. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the Water Cooler, everybody. We are at the end of the show on a Friday. What a way to wrap it up. Hey, let's do this, shall we? Let's bring in Daniel Payne. Uh, why not? I, I don't mean it like that, Daniel. I don't mean why not. <laughs> I, I had to get in here at the very end of it. I, you know, I, I couldn't miss it. <laughs> Daniel Payne with JustTheNews.com. Uh, good to see you, sir. Listen, uh, let's talk about what's going on down in Texas, especially from an energy energy standpoint. What do you have working over there at the uh, at the dot com center, if you will? So, Dave, what we're looking at is, uh, you know, I'm sure most people have seen in the news by now the historic widespread power outages in Texas. Uh, and what's going on down there is there's a lot of finger pointing from different industries as to which energy provider is mostly responsible uh, for, for so much power being out amid the historic cold snap there. And what we found by reviewing uh, a few weeks, several a month or so of federal data is that, uh, you know, there's, there's a great deal of energy in Texas. It's a huge energy state. They rely on a, a wide number of sources to power their homes. Uh, but what it looks like is that uh, when the cold snap hit, wind power, which uh, comprises about 20% of the electricity produced in the state, experienced a pretty catastrophic drop-off of about 90% production. Um, and now various other energy sources in the state also experienced drop-offs, but none so steep as wind power. And given the fact that about one-fifth of the power in the state comes from wind, it seems pretty clear that, that a, a decent bit of these outages can be chalked up to wind turbines. Yeah, which is interesting because that's going to open up a whole political ramification situation as it relates to uh, energy and, and the future political debate ahead on that. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's kind of funny because it, 
it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, it feels like. You know, right. wind turbines are still a relatively young uh, energy source, and, and every technology has so much ironing uh, to get out. You know, you know, fossil fuels were the same way when they first came up, but uh, it, it seems very uh, hard to deny at this point that whatever your feelings on, you know, the future of renewable energies, that they still have a, a great deal of progress to be made before they can uh, provide the kind of reliability that fossil yep. fuels do. Daniel Payne, great to have you here on the show, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Thanks, Dave. I take the bottom of your heart as well. <laughs> okay. Uh, Daniel Payne at JustTheNews.com. By the way, I like to call him Daniel King of Payne. Uh, you have to look it up. If you're Gen Z, you're not going to understand that. I mean, just uh, Google King of Payne Sting. Okay? That's the homework assignment over the weekend. Boy, Gavolt. We'll see you Monday. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.